We are here at the Review of Democracy, the platform of the Central European University's Democracy Institute, where we discuss some of the most exciting new publications concerning the past, present and future of democracies across the globe. My name is Ferenc Lotzel. I will be your host today. And I have the distinct pleasure to introduce Daniel Chandler. Welcome to the show, Daniel. Hello, thanks for having me. Great to have you here at the Review of Democracy. Daniel Chandler is an economist and philosopher based at the London School of Economics. He has degrees in economics, philosophy, and history from Cambridge and the LSE. And he has also studied under Amartya Sen at Harvard. Daniel has worked in the British government as a policy advisor in the Prime Minister's Strategy Unit and Deputy Prime Minister's Office, and also as a researcher at think tanks, including the Resolution Foundation and Institute for Fiscal Studies. Now, Daniel Chandler's first book, which we are here to discuss today, is titled Free and Equal, what would a fair society look like? And it has just been published by Penguin Alan Lane. I'm excited to have the chance to discuss this fascinating book with Daniel today. Now the book Free and Equal aims to articulate a coherent vision of what a better, fairer society would look like, not least by reflecting on the underlying ethical or ideological framework. So could we perhaps begin our discussion with what you view as the key principles that such a better and fairer society would need to be based on? And what do you mean when you state in the book that you present a framework and not a blueprint? Great. So, yeah, anyway, it's really such a pleasure to be here. Maybe before I actually get to the principles that I think would underpin a fairer society, I should just say a little bit about why I think we need those kinds of principles now in the first place. So, you know, I wrote Free and Equal because I felt like it's really all too easy at the moment to point to what's wrong with our societies, whether that's the culture wars or a collapse of trust in politicians and democracy, poverty, inequality, climate crisis, you know, the list goes on. Um, but I think what's missing from our political debate and what's really much harder to find is a coherent vision of what a better, fairer society would actually look like. Um, you know, I think our political debate often feels quite narrow and technocratic, as if economic growth is the only thing that really matters. And particularly at the moment, I think it feels like we're just being buffeted from one crisis to another without a longer term sense of direction. And I think it's at moments like this where we've lost our sense of direction as a society that philosophy can really come into its own and help us think more clearly about what our values are and where exactly it is that we want to be heading. Um, but I think, you know, most people, including people who are interested in politics, would really struggle to name a recent thinker who could give us the kind of inspiration that we need um, for answering those kinds of questions. And, you know, the sort of premise for my book, Free and Equal, is that the ideas that we need are really hiding right in front of us in the work of the, of, you know, the greatest political philosopher of the 20th century, John Rawls. Rawls completely revolutionized political philosophy, and maybe we'll come back a little bit more to him and the, the sort of details of his ideas later. Um, but, you know, he's a thinker who's of the stature of, you know, the likes of Plato, Hobbes, Kant and Mill. Those comparisons, I think, are quite routine within academic political philosophy. 
Um, and in the book, I try to use his ideas to develop a realistic utopian, so a vision of or a picture of the best that a democratic society could be, given what we know about human nature and being realistic about how institutions would actually work in practice. And I think part of what's so exciting about Rawls as a philosopher is that his ideas aren't just interesting, they're actually useful. Um, and that what we get from Rawls's theory in particular are three fundamental principles, one to do with freedom, one to do with equality, and then one to do with sustainability. And those principles together are like a, a kind of toolkit that each of us can use for thinking through both you know, what a fair society would look like and for thinking about the kinds of questions that come up as we read the news every day about, you know, culture wars and free speech or how we organise our democracy and our economy. Um, so that brings me back to your question, which is what are the principles that would actually underpin a fair society? So, you know, the principles that I set out in the book really draw on rules and his first principle is called the basic liberties principle. And that's the idea that Really, the first priority of the state is to protect a set of really fundamental freedoms. Those include personal freedoms like freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of sexuality, but also political freedoms. Um, and on that front, rules is interesting, particularly because uh, for rules, it's what matters isn't just the formal political freedoms like the right to vote or freedom of association or freedom of political speech, but that we have genuinely equal opportunities to exercise those freedoms. And anyway, again, maybe we'll come back to that a little bit later. So that's his first principle is his freedom principle, and it effectively underpins an ideal of a liberal democracy. The second principle his, is his equality principle, and that's actually got two parts. The first is the idea of fair equality of opportunity, essentially that everybody should have an equal chance to develop and exercise their talents and skills in life, irrespective of where they're born or of their class, race or gender. And I think interestingly, a lot of liberals are sort of content to leave questions about economic justice to sort of stop at that point and to think that once we've achieved equality of opportunity, we can sort of sit back and just let markets rip. Um, but Rawls doesn't take that position. He, he argues that we need to combine a commitment to equality of opportunity with what he calls the difference principle. Uh, and it's this principle that's in a sense, the most innovative and radical part of his theory. And it's the idea that we should organize our economy as a whole in a way that would be best for those who have the least in society. And I think that principle is interesting because it, it gives us a way to think about not just opportunity, but also inequality. And from the perspective of that principle, you know, a degree of inequality can be justified. So it might, you know, it could be okay for some people to be paid more than others, but only if the overall consequence of doing so is that everybody benefits and particularly that the least well-off benefit. And, you know, basically the idea being that uh, that higher pay might give people incentives to work or to study or to innovate and, and that that's something that we can all benefit from. Then the third principle, you know, Rawls actually often talks really about there being two principles, but sort of hidden a bit within his theory and something that I really try to bring out more in, in Free and Equal because I think it's so important to the situation and the challenges that we face today is, is a principle of sustainability, which he, he refers to as the just savings principle. And that's basically the idea that we should preserve the essential physical and natural resources on which a democratic or any society for that matter depends for future generations. So together those principles are this kind of 
you know, a coherent and I think astonishingly comprehensive framework for thinking about questions about justice and fairness and how, how we should organize our society. Um, so yeah, those, those are the principles that would underpin a fair society. I, I remember just now you had a, a sort of second part of your question about the distinction between uh, a framework and a blueprint. When I use the word framework in the book, what I have in mind are a set of having a set of moral or ethical principles that can guide our political choices. And I think that's exactly what we get from rules. And I contrast that to a blueprint. We might have a sort of particular set of institutions that we're committed to in a very fixed way, like the way that socialists often have a particular commitment to public ownership or that classical liberals are often particularly committed to a particular idea of free markets. And I think the advantage of having a moral or ethical framework is that we can be more pragmatic about those questions. Um, and, and again, that's, you know, although in the book I try to set out specific institutions that I think would put Rawls's principles into practice, I also recognize that with any of those policies, there's room for debate. And that's a really important thing in any kind of democratic society. Well, that, that's a fascinating uh, introduction to the to the book and also to our conversation today, of course. I wanted to ask a sort of follow-up question, because one mm -hmm. thing that you clearly argue uh, in favor of in the book is the values-based politics, a politics that has moral content. At the very same time, you emphasize that politics should not be about promoting a particular conception of the good life. So could you explain how you would draw the distinction between these two? Sure. I think that, you know, that question really gets to something very much at the heart of Rawls's theory, and I think of the liberal tradition more widely. I guess the first thing to say is just that it will be very clear from the discussion, what I've already said about Rawls, that his theory is clearly a moral one. You know, it's centered around questions of justice, fairness, freedom and equality, and those are all inherently moral concepts. And, you know, I think that's right and really essential that there is no morally neutral way in which to organize society however we choose to organize our basic institutions democracy the education system our economy those are going to shape people's chances and opportunities in life and you know those are just inherently moral questions and i think we need to address them head on i also think it's important politically to recognize the importance of values because if we want to motivate people to bring about change to change our societies for the better i think we need to engage that sense of justice or of the injustice of our existing societies and i think you know i think people are really crying out for that kind of moral or values-based leadership in our politics today so yeah i think we do need a value-based politics, but I don't think that that means politics should be about promoting a particular idea about how to live. You know, in a free society, we are always going to disagree about, you know, the nature of the good life, whether God exists, what the purpose of life is, whether we should devote more time to professional success or family or spiritual achievements. And the role of the state is really not to promote one idea of how to live, but to protect the freedoms that we all need in order to live our lives according to our own beliefs. Um, you know, I think we only have to look at the, the debates around the culture wars today to see why that's so important. Um, I think at the heart of the culture wars is a sense or an idea that politics is somehow a struggle to impose 
one group's conception of how to live on everybody else. And that's what leads to the culture wars having such a, a sort of fractious and an almost existential character to them. And I think what Rawls does is draw a distinction between political values and then our wider personal moral and religious values, which he, he sometimes refers to as our comprehensive moral doctrines, basically, you know, a bigger set of values that try to answer all of the big questions in, in life. And for all, what makes what makes values distinctively political is really two things. First, that they're, they're narrow in scope. So they're specifically values that are there to help us think about how to organize the basic institutions of society. The, the constitution, the education system, the structure of our economy, they, they're not there to answer all these wider questions about whether God exists or how we ought to live. Um, so that, you know, political values, are, they're narrow in scope in that way, and that they only try to answer a specific set of questions. But they're also independent or freestanding from people's wider moral and religious beliefs. And that's, I guess that's really essential, that political values are values that people with very different religious beliefs, whether they're Hindus, Jews, Muslims, Christians, all of those people ought to be able to subscribe to political values. And, and yeah, that's the, that's the sort of distinction that Rawls points to and that I think is really very important for the health of any, of any liberal democracy. Now, as you have been emphasizing already, uh, the book draws quite heavily on the key ideas of John Rawls. And you mentioned early on in the book that it's hard to think of any other political thinker where there would be such a large gap between their influence within the academy and in society at large. So could I ask you a bit about how Rawls's ideas have influenced a political philosophy over the past half a century or so, how they have been contested within the academy, and then why there is this massive gap between his intellectual influence on the one hand and his more directly political influence on the other. Yes, so I, I think that that gap is such an intriguing thing about Rawls. He really has got this unrivaled status, I think, within academic political philosophy. And yet, you know, even amongst people, friends of mine who are really interested in politics, a lot of people have either never heard of him or have, you know, got the wrong impression, I think, about what his ideas, uh, what his ideas are really about. Um, so thinking first about the influence that Rawls has had within academia, I think a big part of it is that he helped bring a sense of optimism and ambition back to political philosophy as a discipline. In the period after the Second World War, I think political philosophy had become quite skeptical about whether philosophers could really add anything of value to big substantive questions about how we should organize society. And political philosophy had become more concerned with sort of analysis of uh, concepts and the nature of moral language and quite esoteric, more, uh, more academic philosophical questions. And, you know, so much so that there's a famous quote from the historian of political thought in the 1950s called Peter Laszlet, who said that basically for now, political philosophy is dead. And I think Rawls is widely credited with reviving political philosophy. And he did that by basically providing a model of what constructive and systematic political thinking would actually look like and really taking on these questions about what a fair society would be, the nature of justice and fairness, putting those questions right back on the agenda. So I think the, that's the first thing that, you know, the first part of Rawls's legacy in a way, or why his, he's had such a big influence in political philosophy is that he put 
big questions that really excited people back on the agenda. But I think his influence is also in the way that he went about answering those questions and the specific answers that he did. So in terms of how Rawls went about answering those questions, I think he helped to revive the social contract tradition, which had more or less disappeared at the time that he was writing in the 50s, 60s and, and 70s. And that, that tradition is the idea that we should you know, organize society in a way that all citizens could agree to in some sense. And Rawls revived this tradition with a thought experiment that's, you know, in many ways, probably the most famous uh, aspect of his, of his philosophy. And that's, he called this experiment, uh, thought experiment, the original position. And it's the idea that if we want to know what a fair society would look like, we should imagine how we would choose to organize it if we didn't know what our position in that society would be. So whether we would be rich or poor, gay or straight, black or white. And I think that is such a powerful and intuitive thought experiment and another tool in a way that Rawls gives us for thinking for ourselves about, you know, what a good, you know, what's both what's wrong with the societies that we currently live in and about what a better society would, would look like. And, and Rawls uses that experiment in a sense to give a justification for the principles that, that I was discussing just in, in response to your previous question. He argues that we would choose to protect our basic freedoms because if we really didn't know where we would end up in society, we wouldn't want to risk being in, you know, being persecuted for our religious beliefs or our sexual orientation or being denied the right to vote because of our gender or the color of our skin. And similarly, he argues that if we didn't know which family we would be we would be born into, we would want to make sure that we had genuinely equal chances to develop our, our skills and abilities in life. Uh, and finally, coming back to the difference principle, this idea that we should uh, organize our economy so as to maximize the life prospects of the least well off. Again, if we didn't know who we would be in society rules, argues that we would pay particular attention to those who have the least because we'd have to take seriously the possibility that that's where we might end up. So I think the first thing is that Rawls put certain questions back on the agenda. The second thing is that he developed a distinctive way to go about answering those questions. And then finally, there's the answer that he gave, the principles that we just discussed. And I think, you know, those have also been enormously influential. And what's really distinctive about them is this combination of freedom and equality, which I think was something that had really bedeviled political philosophy in a sense before rules. There was a sense, I think, that, you know, on the one hand, you had the socialist tradition that really prized equality, but was sometimes willing to sacrifice that in the name of freedom. And then you had the philosophy of classical liberalism, which prized freedom often at the expense of equality. And there was a sense that there was no coherent way to bring the two together. And I think what Rawls did is really show that that was possible in, a, in an incredibly powerful and convincing way. And, and the result being that that kind of egalitarian liberalism is really the dominant school of thought within political philosophy today. And I think it's interesting that that, that might come as a surprise to people who you know, who maybe are not so engaged with academic political philosophy and for whom liberalism is associated more with neoliberalism, with individualism and a, and a commitment to free markets above everything else. And I think if you look in, in academic philosophy today, those ideas are, are very much on the sidelines and it's, it's Rawls's distinctively inclusive and egalitarian liberalism that's really the, um, you know, the dominant way of thinking today. Um, so that's, you know, Rawls's influence. Obviously, like, any 
philosopher of his significance, his ideas have been contested on almost every level. So I think, you know, people have uh, found that the, the, the thought experiment not plausible, or they've questioned the principles. You've had people on the left arguing that he doesn't that it's you know not egalitarian enough for people on the right arguing that Rawls doesn't give enough importance to economic freedoms and and other people other philosophers like Amartya Sen arguing that the whole project in a sense of trying to think about what a perfectly just society would look like is too too abstract and not helpful enough for addressing the practical problems that we face today. And in, in Free and Equal, I have a chapter that's devoted to responding to those criticisms. And I think what comes out really is just how amazingly robust Rawls's theory, theory is. Um, I don't have time to sort of get into all of the details of that now, so I'll have to leave that to people to discover for, them, for themselves. I guess that then leaves us with the final question, which is if Rawls is theory has been so influential and if he really can respond to all of the, the many criticisms that have been directed at him, why hasn't he been more influential? And I think the answer to that is, you know, so I think there are a few parts to the answer. I think one part is Rawls's personality. He was a very shy and modest man. He had uh, a stutter that he had developed after the death of his two younger brothers when he was a child. And he really avoided the limelight. He, he never wanted to be a public intellectual and in that sense was quite unlike some of his contemporaries who were better known and more on the right of the of the political spectrum, thinkers like Friedrich Hayek or Milton Friedman, who were, you know, really very proactive in, in promoting and publicizing their ideas. Rawls really never did that. I think the second thing is the politics of the time. You know, when Rawls's ideas were coming to influence within academia in the 1970s and 80s, real politics was really moving in the opposite direction. You know, Rawls sets out this humane and egalitarian liberalism, but in the 1980s, what was taking hold was a harsh and individualistic neoliberalism instead. And I think we find ourselves today in, you know, in the first moment since Rawls published his great book, A Theory of Justice in 1971, where there really is an opening and an appetite for a big picture philosophy of the kind that, of a, that a thinker like Rawls can provide. Um, which is the final thing, which to some extent I think is really the most important part of the explanation for why Rawls hasn't had more influence and I probably should have got to it sooner. But I think, you know, in a sense Rawls, he never said that much about what the practical implications of his ideas would be. His, his, his own writing remained at a fairly abstract level. He was concerned with setting out his principles and defending them, but he thought that the job of thinking through the details of how we might put them into practice was something that was best left to social scientists. And unfortunately, that, that work hasn't really been picked up since Rawls wrote and since he died. And, and that's really the purpose of my book as an economist, as well as a philosopher, is to pick up where Rawls left off and flesh out a practical agenda for how we really could put his ideas into practice. Um, so yeah, that's my uh, very long answer to that, to that question as well. No, that, that was, of course, a massive series of questions, and I think you've done very well at also tackling some of the most puzzling uh, aspects uh, there. Uh, and you indeed claim in the book that uh, John Rawls's ideas are, in a sense, uniquely suited uh, to ad address some of the largest challenges we face today. Uh, and you also show various ways, indeed, uh, how these ideas might be applied, uh, right? Something that, in a way, he hasn't quite done uh, mm. in his own work. Uh, so first of all, let us talk a bit about what might make his ideas so exceptionally relevant uh, in this moment, 
And then more specifically, how could his ideas then help us bridge some of the deepest divides and improve the democratic process? Sure. So I think, I mean, I think what makes the biggest thing that makes Rawls's theory relevant is that it's a constructive theory. It's a, it's a positive theory about what a better society would look like. And I think they're really, you know, it's really hard to find anything else like that today. I think a lot of work in, in politics and philosophy is predominantly critical. It's about, you know, what's wrong with our institutions and how and the challenges that we face in fixing them. And I think that kind of work is absolutely essential, but it needs to be complemented with a, a with a constructive and positive theory about what a better society would look like. And I think it's hard to find it's hard to find another thinker other than Rawls who really offers that vision in such a comprehensive way today. Maybe you have other thinkers who take individual parts of that puzzle, but I think it's hard to point to anyone else who's able to to bring all of that together into one coherent whole. I mean, coming to some of the specific ways in which I think Rawls's theory is relevant to us today, which you just mentioned. So, you know, one is is exactly the, the way in which he can help us overcome some of the, the cultural and religious divides that, that we have in our societies. And I think he can help us with that in a couple of ways. The first is just by setting out a genuinely inclusive vision of, of what a liberal society would look like. I think that what, you know, sitting behind the culture wars and this is this sense that our societies are irreconcilably divided between people with different personal, moral and religious values. Often, you know, contrast is drawn between sort of liberal, urban, secular, uh, more educated groups, and then uh, and then another group who uh, maybe are more religiously inclined, tend to be rural, more socially conservative in their in their in their moral and religious beliefs. And the way that that division is framed in the discussion of culture wars is as if that inevitably is going to lead to social conflict. And I think what we get from Rawls, you know, is as an alternative to that idea of society as, as locked in a conflict between groups that have irreconcilable moral and religious views. And, you know, really more than any other philosopher, I think Rawls was at pains to articulate a vision of society and of liberalism that could genuinely appeal to people with with a wide range of moral and religious beliefs. And I think in practical terms, as, as we've already touched on, what Rawls does is remind us of the really basic fundamental liberal idea that the role of the state is not to impose one idea about the best way of living on everyone else, but to protect everyone's freedom to live according to their own beliefs. And you know, I think if we do that, of course, people will still disagree. But I think if people are secure in the knowledge that their most basic freedoms are going to be protected, that would help take some of the heat out of the culture war debates that we have today and create a space within which people could live more comfortably alongside other people who might hold very different different views to, to their own. Um, so I think, you know, in addition to that basic point about the limits of the state, uh, Rawls also has an idea of civility, of how we ought to go about treating our fellow citizens, and specifically that we should, you know, we should do our best to treat our fellow citizens with mutual respect. You know, we should be willing to listen to their arguments, to take their arguments in, in good faith, and, and to consider compromising where we can. So I think, you know, on the one hand, we get this uh, you know, a vision of how a society could live peacefully 
even though lots of people will always disagree about moral and religious questions. And I think that's a very attractive idea. And I guess the, the question people might ask is, isn't that just kind of wishful thinking? How exactly can we bring that about? And I think that the other way in which rules can help us here is by recognizing that if we want to bring about that kind of liberal tolerant society, that the state actually needs to take on a more proactive role in bringing that about. And I, you know, I think partly that's comes to the down to the education system, where civic education, I think, has increasingly taken a backseat to the role of the education system in preparing people for economic life. And I think that we need to really restore a sense that the civic aspect of education is really fundamentally important. And it's something not just that should happen in, in sort of dedicated civics classes, but something that should really inform the design of the education system itself. I think, you know, it gives us a reason to to put more emphasis on the humanities uh, and also to cultivate, you know, particular skills, critical thinking skills, and also trying to, I guess, encourage and help young people learn the kinds of attitudes that we need to sustain healthy democratic debate by, you know, you can stage things like uh, mock elections where uh, students are exposed to views that they might disagree with and learn how to, how to navigate that in a respectful way. Um, and, and then I think alongside the education system, there's also a role for, you know, a, an inclusive and liberal form of patriotism. I think there's a lot of understandable skepticism, particularly amongst progressives about whether there really should be a place for any form of national identity within progressive politics. And I think that's understandable because, you know, forms of national identity historically have often been used as, as tools of oppression and exclusion. And I think if we, you know, we look around the world today with the rise of the far right, we see those exclusionary forms of national identity really on the rise again. But I think, you know, it would be a, a mistake to think that there's no space for a notion of national identity or patriotism within a liberal and progressive politics, partly just because as a basic point of pragmatism, I think those forms of identity are important to people and that's not going to change anytime soon. And if liberals don't offer a progressive account of patriotic identity, then I think more exclusionary nationalist forces will inevitably come to occupy that space. But I think there's also a, you know, a positive role for patriotism. A sense of national identity can help us see beyond our own individual interests and, and see ourselves as part of a, of a much wider project. And I think a, a genuinely liberal and inclusive patriotism would obviously it, it couldn't be organized around a sense of ethnicity or religion, because those are things that citizens don't that we don't all share. What it would have to be organized around are political values and political institutions, in a sense the the shared project that we have of bringing about a, a just and liberal society and the institutions like parliaments or the National Health Service or, or the school system that we have um, to help to, to bring that about. You, you also asked about how rules can help us um, improve the democratic process. And I think what's distinctive about rules when it comes to thinking about democracy, as I, as I mentioned briefly at the beginning, is his recognition that democracy isn't only about securing formal rights and freedoms. Obviously, freedom of speech freedom of association, you know, the freedom to organize into political parties and the right to vote, those are all really essential. But what we 
should want in a democracy is for people to have genuine political equality, equal opportunities to influence and take part in the political process much more widely. And I think if we, you know, we look around the world's rich democracies today, that really isn't the case. There's been a whole, you know, a whole range of studies that show that um, that when we look at the decisions made by legislators, they often uh, track much more closely the views and preferences of rich citizens compared to those of ordinary and, and lower income citizens. And I think if we really take Rawls's ideal of political equality seriously, that will point towards some quite fundamental reforms to our political systems, particularly in the UK. So, you know, in the book, I argue for proportional representation as part of a package of, of democratic reform. Obviously, lots of European countries already have that. And I think the UK should be moving in that direction. I also argue that there's a role for expanding more participatory forms of decision-making, even going as far as creating second or third chambers that are comprised of citizens who are selected randomly by a lottery process. Um, but I think maybe the most urgent change that's probably necessary across the board would be to overhaul the way that we fund political parties. Um, and I'll give you just an example from the UK about you know, how things are at the moment, where nearly half of all donations in 2019 came from just over 100 super donors, each of which were giving an average of nearly um, £450,000 each. And I think you know, that system very blatantly violates the ideal of political equality because it gives the rich a very direct influence over politics that just isn't available to the rest of us. And in, in free and equal, I argue that we should uh, we should counter that by doing two things. First, we should impose very tight limits on political donations, say in the, you know, the low hundreds of pounds or euros. And then we should look to replace that with a system of publicly funded democracy vouchers where every citizen would be given an equal amount, say 50 pounds or 50 euros, which which they could then donate to the political party of their choice. And I think that's a system that would completely transform the incentives that we have in our uh, democracies and move them drastically towards Rawls's ideal of political equality. Fascinating. Again, one of the things that really you show very convincingly in the book is how well-versed you are in a number of fields, uh, right? Philosophy, first of all, but also economics. And I wanted to come to that a, a bit more directly uh, because you say that um, the ideas that Rawls has introduced can also help us fundamentally reshape our economic institutions, uh, not least by placing questions of power, of control, but also of dignity and self-respect at the heart of liberal economic thinking. Uh, so may I ask you how we could uh, be reflecting on those questions and how those questions then can help us rethink the current economic order and what kind of new arrangements might that uh, result in? Yes, so I think you're absolutely right. I think it's when it comes really to economic questions that we really see the full transformative potential of Rawls's ideas. And, you know, as we saw before, there were two parts to Rawls's equality principle, which is really the key principle for thinking about our economic institutions. The first part was his principle of fair equality of opportunity. And, you know, I think that's a fairly familiar principle in some sense, although I think most countries are a long way away from achieving it right now and, and really putting that into practice would require some pretty some pretty fundamental reforms. But I think the principle that really really changes the way that we think about our economic institutions is the difference principle. 
which, as I said before, is the idea that we should organize our economic institutions so as to maximize the prospects of the least well off. And obviously, on one level, that's an argument for more equality. I think it'd be hard to argue that our economic systems work best for the least well off today. You know, there's nothing about markets, the way that markets work, that means that they automatically uh, would deliver that. And no country has really set out to achieve that kind of uh, such a strong principle of, of equality. So it would really be, you know, it would be an amazing coincidence if we were achieving that. And I think it's pretty clear that 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 we're not. So partly the difference principle is an argument for more equality. But as, as you indicated in your question, I think in a way what's most interesting about that principle, but which has often been overlooked, is how it can point us towards a much richer conversation about the kinds of inequality that matter, uh, and also the limits of the, the tax and spend paradigm that I think has dominated particularly progressive economic thinking for, for probably for more than a generation. So, you know, I think contemporary debates about inequality, both in academia and in our public discourse, often focus on the distribution of income and wealth. And I think the difference principle has often been interpreted in that way, too, as if, as if it's just an argument for an expanded welfare state. But obviously, the distribution of income you know, matters a lot in a market, a market economy. But I think if we focus exclusively on the distribution of financial resources, we miss you know, many of the most important inequalities that exist in our societies. And we also would, would completely misunderstand the, the purpose of you know, what Rawls was getting at when he was talking about the difference principle. Rawls was clear that that principle is concerned not just with inequalities of income and wealth, but with the distribution of economic power and control, by which he's, he means you know, the hierarchies within firms, the balance of power between workers and owners, and then with what he calls the social bases of self-respect, uh, which include basically the ways that our economic institutions shape the opportunities that we have for a sense of independence in life, for social recognition, and particularly for access to, to meaningful work. And in, in Free and Equal, I argue that if we take seriously that much broader perspective on what we want from our economic system, an economic system that doesn't just deliver a more equal distribution of money, but also real opportunities for power and control and for self-respect, then again, we would embrace a more fundamental reshaping of our economic institutions. And you know, some of the key uh, building blocks of that agenda that I, that I talk through in more detail in the book are first, that we should embrace a universal basic income as the best way to meet citizens' basic needs whilst bolstering the sense of independence and self-respect that they, that they might have. Second, I argue that we should, uh, beyond meeting basic needs, focus on a broader strategy of, uh, of what's, I think, today known as pre-distribution. Essentially, that we should focus on tackling inequality at its source rather than relying on taxes and redistribution at the other end. And then, Finally, I argue that we really need a, a fundamental shift in the balance of power between workers and owners. And, and I argue that part of that would be through embracing uh, something like the German system of co-management between workers and owners, but also through uh, for new policies that would really encourage the growth of worker cooperatives, um, which I think is something that you know we see in a few countries in like Spain and Italy, they have a much larger cooperative sector. And I think there's much more that we could do to expand that across the board.
Uh, fascinating. Actually, you have just started talking about something I wanted to ask a bit more about. Because one thing I have noticed is that many of the examples uh, you take and you address in the book concern the UK and the US. But you also draw uh, on examples from a host of other places. And so are there perhaps key instances uh, that you would like to highlight where Rawlsian values and Rawlsian principles have already been applied in practice? And then what do we know about the consequences of those attempts to, to actually apply that? Sure. So, yeah, I think you're right. When I'm in the book, when I'm illustrating the problem, I often uh, reach for examples from the UK and the US, but also from, you know, sources like the OECD, because in a sense, I think the, the, the problems that rich liberal democracies face today are fairly similar across countries. And the book is really aimed at, at liberal democracies in general, rather than any particular country. Uh, and when it comes to solutions, you know, what I've tried to do in the book is really bring together some of the best and most exciting ideas from around the world about how countries or cities really are doing things differently. You know, examples that can really give us a sense of, of realistic hope that, that, that significant change is possible. There are lots of examples in the book, maybe a couple that I'll pick up on. Uh, now, maybe the first is to pick up on that idea of democracy vouchers, which I mentioned before, this idea that every citizen could be given an equal amount per year that they could donate to the party of their choice. Now, I think for a long while, that was an idea that was just a kind of pipe dream of philosophers and academics who were interested in theorizing about democracy. But we now have at least one example of this system being put into practice, which is in Seattle in America. So since 2017, Local elections in Seattle have been organized with a democracy voucher system. And the way that it works is that each citizen in each election cycle gets four $25 vouchers, and then they're free to donate those to the politician or the candidate of their choice. And so far, we've had three elections that have been run under that system. And as you can imagine, given that it's such a novel way of doing things, there have been quite a lot of studies looking at how that's how that has turned out. And I think the results are really positive and should give us faith that that is a model that could be applied at the national level. So, you know, in Seattle, I think what we've seen is both we saw both a big increase in uh, the number of individual donations and particularly an increase in engagement from people who maybe had never given, never, never donated to a political party before. We also saw elections in Seattle become more competitive, which is usually a good thing for a democracy. So we saw a very big increase in the number of candidates and also in the number of incumbents that were being beaten by challenges in those elections. So it seems to have worked very well in Seattle. And I think you know the time has come to extend that idea much more widely. Another policy that I discuss in the book is how we should think about private or fee-paying schools. Um, you know, I argue in in, in the book that if we want to achieve genuine equality of opportunity, then at the very least we should remove public subsidies from fee-paying schools, but ideally that we should abolish them altogether because they provide you know, a way in which the children of very wealthy parents are able to gain extra advantages that really aren't available to everybody else. 
Now, I think the question of whether or not private schools should exist raises both moral and practical issues. And, you know, I think what rules can really help us do is uh, address the moral questions that come up and explain why, even from a liberal perspective, there's a very strong case for restricting or abolishing private schools. But, but since we've sort of moved into a more practical domain of the discussion, we can look to Finland to really see what this would look like in practice. So uh, in Finland in the 1970s, they changed their constitution to abolish fee-paying schools. They had a fairly significant private sector at the time. And over the subsequent decade, those schools were incorporated into the state system. There's still a handful of schools that are run by private companies, but they're not allowed to charge fees and the funding structure is, is incorporated into the state system. And I think the good news is that contrary to what some people have feared, you know, there's been no decline in quality. Finland's school system is one of the best in the world. And, in, you know, international uh, tests and ranking systems, Finland, you know, routinely scores right at the top of the league tables when it comes to maths, literacy and science. And I think, again, it shows us that it's perfectly possible to have an incredibly successful, well-functioning school system within which private schools just don't exist. Um, the final example, maybe which I touched on before, is this model of co-management in Germany. And I think particularly in countries like the UK and the US, where we have a, a pretty extreme version of the shareholder primacy model, where it's really the owners of firms who have all of the decision making rights about how those companies are run. It's interesting to notice that actually there are lots of countries in Europe where that isn't the case and where workers have at least a degree of power over, uh, you know, share a degree of power with owners over these kinds of questions about how their firms are run. So in, in Germany, workers elect a third of the of the board of companies in firms with more than 500 workers and then they elect half of the seats on the board in the largest companies with more than 2000 workers and you know there's been a lot of studies that have again looked at how this works and the evidence is really very positive that this kind of system can strengthen workers uh, sense of control at work and improve their working conditions in various ways and has really come at no no practical cost in terms of profitability, productivity, or the various measures that we have of, of, of firm performance. You know, I think across the board, we can find uh, exciting and practical examples from around the world that should really help us have a sense of confidence that, that there are other ways of doing things that, and that we could put those into practice. Amazing. I think this is exactly what offers a realistic hope, as you mentioned uh, earlier. Now, Jonas is obviously known as an egalitarian uh, liberal, uh, and the vision you articulate in the book, and, and you state this explicitly, should be considered a left-leaning uh, vision of uh, liberalism. Uh, at the heart of the discussion are questions concerning social and economic fairness and justice. Now, how this differs from neoliberalism, I think, should be fairly evident. Mm. But I also wanted to ask you, you know, how you would uh, discuss the relationship between these progressive forms of liberalism uh, that you plead for and socialist, or one might say social democratic, or in the US context, democratic socialist ideas, uh, where do those uh, two uh, major traditions uh, differ? Yeah, I think that's a great question. You know, I think, as you say, Rawls is clearly a liberal. I don't think anyone would would dispute that. And part of my aim in the book is to try to, to rehabilitate liberalism, uh, particularly for progressives. You know, as you say, Rawls is liberalism is a is a left-leaning version of liberalism and a big part of my aim in the book is to is to persuade 
progressives, particularly on the left, people who identify as socialists, that the liberal tradition is their natural ally and, and in many ways provides resources that they could draw on to make a more coherent and more powerful argument for many of the policies that they that they already support. Um, so, you know, I think there's obviously a big difference between Rawls's liberalism and more authoritarian forms of socialism. I think that's clear for Rawls, individual freedom and democracy are non-negotiable and more authoritarian forms of socialism have sometimes been willing to sacrifice those freedoms. But, you know, as you, I think, indicated, no one really advocates for that kind of authoritarian socialism today. And the revival of interest in socialism in the UK, the US, and, and also across Europe over the past decade, is really for a form of democratic socialism, uh, a socialism that embraces um, the importance of individual freedoms and democracy just in the same way that Rawls does. And to be honest, I think the boundaries between Rawls's egalitarian liberalism and contemporary forms of social democracy or democratic socialism are not very sharp at all. I think they're really part of an overlapping family of ideas. And I think that's part of what's exciting about Rawls is exactly how he offers us a philosophy that can draw together the best of the liberal and socialist traditions. Um, I, you know, I think that's that's exciting intellectually, but it's also exciting politically because I think the divide between liberals and socialists is, uh, you know, it's often been something that's really held back progressive politics. And my hope is that by putting Walter's ideas out into the political domain, they can help to bridge that kind of divide and you know, articulate a political agenda that could draw both democratic socialists and liberals together, you know, onto the same page. I don't think that means, you know, it's not that there are no differences between Rawls's egalitarian liberalism and the kinds of positions advocated by democratic socialists. I think socialists today maybe tend to be slightly more committed to forms of public ownership, more skeptical about free markets, um, but, you know, I don't think at the level of fundamental principles, I think there isn't that much difference between them today. And my hope and, you know, I think what Rawls can do for us is encourage liberals and socialists to unite around the common set of principles and then be pragmatic about the question of how we can how it is that we can uh, put those into practice. Thank you so much. I think this has been a very rich and substantial uh, discussion. I think we've covered a whole host of very important uh, questions. Thank you so much for being on the show today, Daniel. Right. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, the pleasure has all been mine. Uh, Daniel Chandler's new book, a Free and Equal, What Would a Fair Society Look Like? has just been published. Uh, it's a fascinating reformulation of liberalism for our times. I can highly recommend it. I hope you enjoyed our conversation about it. Until the next time. 